Welcome to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX. My name is Glenn Washington. In downtown Oakland, California, I am supremely excited about this Snap Judgment episode. Ever since I was a little boy, I used to read comic books and wonder what it would be like to be touched by superherodom. Today, on Snap Judgment, we find out how does it feel to get the superhero call, radioactive bug bite, the toxic waste spill, maybe a special suit only you can wear. Every superhero has their own origin story, and I have one for you today. Ladies and gentlemen, I, your host, Glenn Washington, with mine own eyes, saw and was there at the creation of a real-life superhero. No comic book this, flesh and blood. And you might laugh, call me names, slash my tires, but not one, two, but four actual living witnesses can back up my claim. Don't you worry about who. It was some time ago, maybe 4.30 in the morning, Osaka, Japan, five of us out that night celebrating the good fortune of one Chris Stevens for having landed a real job. We were so proud. One of our own had made it to the other side and we headed back now to sleep off the night in Chris's brand new deluxe apartment in the sky. We were almost at his doorstep and off in the distance, we heard the wine, the wine. I saw Chris's face contort here was the one chink in Chris's perfect existence, the perfect apartment, the perfect job. Every night, they ruin his perfect sleep with the wine. Every night. And Osaka, wannabe gangsters, Bosuzoku, prowl the streets at night, intimidating the good people. They creep along on their motorbikes, 60 to 80 deep. Slow, riding slow, scowling, daring people to say something. All the while, they rev their engines as loud as they can for no damn reason. But since they're kind of almost half gangster, everybody's afraid of them. You're supposed to cower, lower your head. Supposed to. Supposed to, but maybe it was the full moon. Maybe it was those sleepless mornings, but that day, up with more he would not put. Chris runs out in the middle of the empty street, faces the oncoming motorcycles, and says, Come on! We all join him, laughing, standing in the middle of the road as the headlights grow closer. The motorcycles rev louder. All five of us are shouting defiance. Nani arano! Nani arano! Nani arano! Chipurachan! But then, they're, they're really coming. They're really getting closer. And one by one, we bolt to the side of the street. I'd like to think that I was the last one to leave Chris, but leave him I did. He stayed, all alone, all by himself. We shouted from the get out of the way, Chris, Chris. He wasn't listening. The Bosozoku whined closer, engines revving closer. Chris stood waiting, waiting. Then he ran, not away, toward the motorcycle, screaming. He grabbed the first two off their bikes and dodged others, crashing into the fray. Chris punched, spun, kicked. He was possessed. A surfboard strapped to one of the bikes became his cudgel, knocking two wannabes off the bike at a time with a swing. Time slow. Chris, his face frozen in an unmoving mass mode through scores of gangsters, violent, furious, dance, bob, weave, still untouched, strikes, duck, spin, pow. Bikes fell, cries, pain, shock, bedlam. Chris grabbed the final to him, mighty now, a warrior. He lifted both off their cycles, threw them to the ground, and spat a curse only they could hear. then walked away down the street 
slow motion perfectly framed by the not yet risen sun, and we all knew that a crime fighter was born. I saw it. I saw it. We were there at the very beginning. Today on Snap Judgment, origin stories. This is where it all began. What was the first superhero you created? Snap Judgment's Stephanie Fu talking with current professional comic book artists about their first creations. Uh, yeah, his name was uh, Demo, uh, D-E-M-O, which at the time I didn't realize meant demo. Zenith said he's 10 stories tall with razor sharp claw plates. His face was never seen and never will be. It was basically an Iron Man ripoff. I probably thought at the time, Wolverine is so cool that if I made a 10-story Wolverine, how cool would that be? Another character named Gambit, and I would draw my own character named Nambit with an M. When I was about nine years old, I created a character called Granite Man. In a laboratory accident, actually invented these wristbands that made his fists super granite hard. And he could fly. <laughs> For no reason that I can really figure out. I took a crack at creating my own brand of what I thought was a fairly sophisticated and original version of superheroes called the Teenage Mutant Future Turtles. When I was young, the first superhero I created was Moose Man. And pretty much every animal was already covered in superhero form. But I realized that no one had covered a moose. My first hero was a, a young lady named Luna. Luna, like myself, was a princess who was being forced into a marriage that she didn't want. All superheroes are kind of an, an empowerment to a little boy's fantasy of being, you know, powerful. If he was in trouble, he could yell out, ooh a boo, and then Moose from a nearby forest would come and help him. I had one character named Discus. Like, he had really cool hair. And uh, I always wanted really cool straight hair, but I had stupid curly hair. He was in great shape. I was not. He was confident. I was not. You know, and you want to go into a room and kick everyone's ass. Mostly I was drawing his hair. There was a guy named Diamond Rio. All his powers were related to diamonds. In retrospect, isn't probably the most economically feasible theme for a superhero. He had diamond dust, which was... As you would imagine, dust made from diamonds, and <laughs> he would carry it in a pouch, and he would like throw it at you, and you would inhale it, and it would cut up your insides. What little boy doesn't want all that? I mean, everything about him is is unattainable, including his weapons. You know, he's just like he's he's like he's on a pedestal. He's like the coolest guy ever. What was the first superhero you created? Comic artists Dave Johnson, Anthony Pakoyevic, Sean Gordon Murphy, Matt Wagner, Sean Chang, Sarah Straw, John Magius, and John Adams. To hear more interviews plus the original childhood drawings from all the amazing now professional comic book artists that our own Stephanie Fu spoke with, go to snapjudgment.org. There, you can even leave your own origin story. We will not tease you very much. This is Snap Judgment. This, this is where it all began. Snap this judgment. is where it all began. If you're going to go to medical school and study all hard for all those many years, you might as well do it on a beautiful tropical island, right? At least, that's what Anat was thinking when she signed up for medical classes at Ross University on the Caribbean island of Dominica. <laughs> Landing on the island is hard, and airport would be a strong word to describe the one little runway in a valley between steep mountains topped by a boiling lake, and no, I'm not kidding. Getting around the island, that's no picnic either. You get these taxi cabs, you know, they're not like yellow cabs in New York. They're these minivans that, you know, a million people can fit on with their chicken boosters, kids. Someone walks on with their baby and they like hand a baby to you. Then the island's rhythms start to lure her in. Amazing. Plush, there's flowers everywhere. It has amazing waterfalls. It has incredible diving and champagne uh, corals. What a beautiful island. And they had this bar and it's out on 
on the water and it's really cool and we've made a nice group of friends. And we all decide, hey, this is where we're gonna spend the next two and a half years. And it's really quite an adventure. It was the good kind of adventure until the first day of school. We're sitting in class and we're all there and no professors show up. We're all sitting, you know, looking at each other and it's this big um, Coliseum classrooms and all of a sudden the cleaning guy David shows up and someone asks him like, hey, what's going on? And he says, oh guys, there's a hurricane coming. I'm like, what are you talking about? I grew up in New York City, I've never heard of a hurricane. So we all left. Anat and her friends took refuge while Hurricane Maryland slapped Dominica's shore. But that wasn't the end of hurricane season. Look at this! Look at this rainy wind just roaring across these trees right now. Hurricane Maryland was followed by Hurricane Noel. Which was followed by Hurricane Opal. Look at the rain. It when it hits your face. After three consecutive hurricanes, most of the island is stuck with no electricity and no running water for over five weeks. So one day it's really dark. We have no running water, no electricity. My nerdy roommates and myself are studying with flashlights and we often travel between Portsmouth and school or the area around school where a lot of the students live uh, by hitchhiking. So there was this third or fourth semester student and this guy's hitchhiking on the back of a pickup truck. And uh, the pickup truck slows down and he jumps off. And the pickup truck takes off and he hears a ping. He looks down and he finds his finger with his ring on it. Who? What's that sound? Oh, that, that was my a ring. But my finger's still in it. How my ring? Get on the ground with my finger. Somebody cut off my finger. My finger, my ring and my finger, they're on the ground. Don't nobody step over here. Don't nobody step over here. Don't nobody step over here. Now, calmly or not calmly, he picks it up. And I don't understand how he's not hemorrhaging to death, but um, he picks it up and uh, he walks into our favorite bar, which is now half underwater. And he solicits people for help. The bar happens to have a freezer hooked up to a generator. These first year medical students don't know a lot, but they do know enough to pack the finger in ice. There's no hospital on Dominica that can reattach the finger. They have to get him to a hospital in Miami. They've got to get him off this island. My friend David was one of the only people to have a telephone at, at this time. And this is during the 37 days of no water and no electricity. So how David Silverman happens to have a telephone is beyond me. But he has a telephone and he calls the U.S. Coast Guard. He gets hold of someone and they say, look, we can't land the plane on this island because it's, you know, dark. And um, there's too many mountains. So you guys either figure out a way for the guy to like go to a real island with lights or you have to wait until the morning. What's the big deal? It's just a guy's finger. Just a finger. So a group of students got together and realized there was a pathology professor, Dr. Twidell who had lived on the island and owned a plane. And so we all went down to his house. Said, can you please help? We need to airlift someone to St. Martin so that then the Coast Guard can come and airlift the student. Dr. Tweedell is not exactly ready and willing to help. This guy's well over the age of 70, 80. They plead. They pressure, they beg, and finally he agrees to fly the plane. But of course, there's a complication. This is Dominica. It's pitch dark. So if they do manage to get to the airport, there won't be any way to light up the runway. There's no electricity. And even if there were, there are no lights on the runway. This is Dominica, and you can only get there or take off in the daytime. But these super friends are on a mission to rescue this finger, and rescue the finger they will. The friends come up with 
with a brilliant plan. They track down as many cars as they can. They head to the airport to get there. They have to navigate the islands, twisting, turning, two-lane roads at high speed. Even during the day, it's dangerous. They're running out of time. They're running out of time. It's like almost impossible, but people end up managing to get down to the airport. All of the cars and all of the friends and the finger, they all make it to the airport. One by one by one, the cars pull in beside one another on the runway, flip on their high beams. It's enough, just barely enough to give Dr. Tweedell the light he needs for takeoff. And Tweedell flies him to St. Martin. And from there, he met the airlift people who took him to Miami. And then he ended up getting his finger replaced. It was the longest amount of time that a finger was unattached to a body and then retached. Apparently, it's in some journal. He was so proud of this fact. He should be proud. This guy would have lost his finger without the help of the super friends. A few semesters later, we see this guy, and he comes back, and everyone's like, how's your finger? And he holds out his finger, and it's like, I don't remember it bending, but it's a finger. Coming up on Snap Judgment, more stories of mere mortals rising above adversity to become mighty. Lives in danger, heroes will be born. Plus, what's a comic book without an evil villain? It's all coming up, true believers. My name is Glenn Washington. This is Snap Judgment from NPR. Stay tuned. Enough said. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX. I'm your host, Glenn Washington, and today we're all about the comic books. You know, my favorite kind of comic was always the one I had to keep secret. There was something delicious and illicit. It lurked right at the edge of the horizon. I didn't quite know what it was, but I knew not to let my mama know I was reading under the covers with a flashlight. Snap Judgment. Seduction of the Innocent by Frederick Wortham, published 1954. Comic books stimulate children sexually. That is an elementary fact of my research. I'm about to hit puberty and, hey, I can draw these sexy girls. Suddenly my drawings were 99%. Basically women in bathing suits. What was the first superhero you created? Oh, I, I had one. <laughs> this is awful. Her name was Seahawk and she was Aquaman's girlfriend. I had a big crush on Aquaman. In comic books over and over again, in pictures and text, and in the advertisements as well, attention is drawn to sexual characteristics and sexual actions. I used to totally crush on comic book characters. I definitely liked my own drawing. I mean, I, yeah, I must have been turned on at least by my own drawings. Have you seen Aquaman? <laughs> he's totally hot and he's wet. <laughs> One might speculate that children in good circumstances with strict ethical education would be immune against such temptation and seduction, but that is a naive and amateurish view, although the comic book industry has been able, through its scientific spokesman, to put it over on the public. <laughs> At the time, my, my good friend, he had a Swedish exchange student who was 18, 
living at his house for a year. And I was so in love with her. And so I named the character Debris after her and made her look like her uh, tall blonde haired girl. I mean, I, yeah, I must have been turned on at least by my own drawing. First superhero. First one, her name was Luna Boobs and it was all about how her boobs would get bigger when the, when the moon would become full. Oh, you know, I have very few females that I drew. I think I found them hard to draw. I think I was intimidated. Well, by their anatomy. So she wasn't very practical because when the moon was full, she had to stay inside because it was so, so big. <laughs> what was the first superhero you created? Seduction of the Innocent by Frederick Wortham, published 1954. <laughs> The only superhero I've ever loved is Thor. In the new Ultimates comic books, he's this anti-capitalist hippie, and he's camped out on a fjord with a bunch of other hippies. He's got long blonde hair and a shaggy beard and ripped arms and well-defined abs. And he carries this huge war hammer that can control thunder and lightning. Thor is the son of the Norse god Odin, and he believes that he's been sent from the heavens to purify the earth. He's very powerful. He's my dream man. One weekend in early winter, I take a rock climbing class in Joshua Tree in the California desert. It's really, really cold, and I have these plans to grill a steak over a fire at the campground, but it was too cold. So I follow the teacher and the other people from the climbing class, these three dudes, to this restaurant for dinner in the town of Joshua Tree. And there's one restaurant in the town of Joshua Tree where all the climbers go to hang out after climbing all day. It's this loud, raucous place. They have healthy food and really good beer. And I got a turkey burger and a dark porter, and I sat down at the counter next to one of the guys from my class. He's personable, and he tells me about the night he met his wife. So I happen to look over, and I see this guy at the end of the counter. He's in the middle of telling a story to a bunch of people. He's wearing a sleeveless t-shirt, and his arms are sort of stretched out, demonstrating a skydive. He's telling this story about how he split his lip open with his teeth the last time he jumped out of a plane. And he's really tan, and I notice that his muscles are pretty remarkable. And he's got long blonde hair and a shaggy beard. And um, he's flying. I mean, he's imitating flying through the air. You know, what it must be like to skydive. In the middle of his story, he looks up at me. And our eyes meet. And I'm thinking, this guy looks just like Thor. I feel my body heat rise very rapidly. And I'm completely overcome. Everything goes silent. The guy next to me talking, all the groups of climbers, the music. Everything. It's this crystalline moment. Just me and him. Everything else disappears. And he comes over. I'm a magnet. And he's drawn to me. And he just stands there next to me and I look up at him. And all this energy is crackling between us. And my heart is like beating in my throat. We talk for a minute and then he tells me, I have three kids. And without skipping a beat, I just look at him and I'm like, sounds like fun. After all, I want kids. And he says, I gotta go. I gotta meet my friend. And I say, okay, bye. But before he leaves, he puts his hand on my back. And this wave of heat and desire just crashes in my chest a lightning bolt, and then he's gone. And I'm like dizzy, and I'm trying to steady myself. And the guy I'm sitting next to says, nice guy. I'm like, yeah, totally, nice guy. So we all leave, and everybody camps out in the desert. And the wind is blowing really hard, and the tent was shaking, and I'm by myself in there, huddled in the sleeping bag. I'm freezing cold, and I don't sleep at all, because I'm just thinking about this guy all night. And the next day I go and climb all day, and I get in my car to go back home. Two hours, that's my drive. And I'm driving through the park on the way out. And Joshua Tree has this surreal landscape. The sun is setting, and the horizon is huge. The trees are like 
people frozen in these postures and the sunset lasts a really long time. And the rock formations are like faces and crowds of people and they turn amber and then pink as the sun sets. And it's this long black ribbon of road. What do I do? Am I really gonna just drive back home? I'm gonna go back to that restaurant and just see. So I go back to the restaurant. And tonight there's nobody in there. It's totally empty. And I order some food and I sit at the counter, the same place I sat the night before. And I just sit there and wait. And then the door opens and he walks in. He walks right over to me. I'm so glad you're here, he says. Like we had made a date, like, like he was expecting me, and there I am. And then all these guys come in, they're all his friends, and they all order food, and they sit at the counter. It's loud, they're all telling these climbing stories, but he and I are just locked in on each other. And at some point I get up, and I say, it's getting late, I gotta work tomorrow, I gotta go home. And, and so he gets up and says, oh, I'll walk you to your car. So we get outside, and we're walking. And he says, last night I was crashing on my friend's couch, and I couldn't sleep because I was thinking about you. He was having the same experience as me. So we get to my car, and within about four minutes, we had driven out into the middle of the desert. We found this remote place. There were no houses and no cars and nobody. And we got out of the car and we're making a bed out of the sand. It felt perfect. No one's ever felt like that before. The next weekend, his kids spend the night at their friends' houses and he takes me back to the desert. In the car, he tells me about this first ascent he made of a peak in the Andes in Peru. And then he takes me off-roading. And I've never been off-roading before. I've never actually seen an ATV or a quad or a dirt bike, but there are these places in the desert, these hilly areas, where if you have an off-road vehicle, you go to these places to ride them. So his dirt bike is like the size of a horse. You have to use a ladder to mount this thing. So he's like, oh, I got to put on my gear. And I'm watching him put on all his gear from, from behind. His back is to me. And he puts on these red and white leather pants with pads and the thighs and the knees and these big black leather boots. And he puts on this matching red and white leather jacket with the pads on the shoulders and the elbows and these long gloves. And then he picks up his helmet and he turns around and across the front of the jacket in black, puffy, leather letters is the word Thor. He tucks his hair into the helmet and wipes some mist off of his beard and puts the helmet on and he's like, let's go for a ride. So I get on the back of this dirt bike and I grab him around the waist and the bike is so loud and powerful and we ride around the desert and we do these jumps into mud piles and it splatters mud everywhere and then we get to the base of this really steep rock formation and he points to the top of it. And I'm like, what, what are you, no, no, no. And he just starts laughing and rides up it. This vertical rock face, okay, with me behind him. And as we're going up, I'm so terrified and I'm so aroused at the same time. And we get to the top and it's totally quiet. And I think to myself, this is how Lois Lane felt when Superman flew her over Metropolis for the first time. And I'm like, okay, I found him. I found my man. I found Thor.
two months later, Thor dumps me. He and his kids had just spent the weekend with me. I thought we were doing well. I don't understand it. One question keeps running through my head, over and over. What did I do wrong? I never get an answer from him. It's just over. I'm hurt. I stop eating, I stop sleeping. But eventually, I realize I have to go on with my life. So I go to South America, I go to Japan, I move on. And then a few months later, I'm on this climbing website, looking at all the bulletins, and I see Thor's name, and I click on it. And I find out he's been injured. Bad. I'm talking to Thor for the first time since he broke up with me. It was crazy. So time just disappeared, you know? I mean, hours would disappear, days would just disappear. Weeks, you know, months, you know. Oh my God, like it's been months. I've been sitting here in this, you know, ICU for, you know, two months. And then the next hospital for a month and a half. Thor's living at his mother's house now. They've modified the place to accommodate his wheelchair and they've added a room for his round-the-clock caregiver because Thor is now paralyzed from the neck down. I didn't know that you knew, and I wanted to let you know before too much time went by, too. He was cliff diving into a river when it happened. So, I mean, I dove off a 15-foot rock, maybe taller, like maybe 15-foot rock. I did a, a one-and-a-half forward flip into, like, a perfect dive. And the water was only four feet deep. Why? 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 I did it because I didn't know it was freaking shallow. You know, I had no idea it was shallow. I've been diving my entire life. I did it because I was showing off. There was a ton of people there. You know, I was like, screw it. I'll do something cool and give these guys a show. And I hooked a one and a half flip. And that was it. Damn. Most likely, he'll never walk again. I mean, I severely traumatized my, my vertebrae. That's as close as you can come since I bring your spinal cord. How are you alive? I don't... Well, people survive. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's amazing. What's more amazing to me is that I can still be functioning and normal with nine-tenths of my body incapacitated. And I know I'm not supposed to feel this, and I'm certainly not supposed to say it out loud, but I'm profoundly grateful that he dumped me before this happened because I didn't have to be his girlfriend or his wife and watch him take that dive because all I can see is what he's lost. He's no longer Thor, right? My hands don't work, you know? Half of my arms don't work. I have to help with everything. I have to help getting dressed, to getting transferred in my chair. So people think that when you're paralyzed, you just can't feel anything. So that's sort of true. You can't feel any sense of touch, but you can still feel all the nerves and bones and aching and stuff inside. Like, I'm in pain all the time. His voice hasn't changed much. So talking to him brings back all these memories of his physical power, his daring, his charm, his climbing prowess. Do you think about climbing and like jumping out of airplanes and stuff. Do you think about that sometimes? Oh, of course. It's cool to have those memories, have those experiences. And also, more than anything, is what it taught me. You know, everything I've done was like preparing for something this difficult. Anytime I get confused or down about this, you know what I mean? It's the perspective I have. It's, this is what I've always wanted to do my entire life. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what the medium is. What I've always wanted to enjoy doing is putting myself at the challenges and trying to learn something about yourself, you know, be stronger than you thought you were or you ever knew you could possibly be. Even now, without his superpowers, Thor is still Thor. Ultimately, the more that I can accept where I am and let go of what I'm not anymore, the more I can become what I'm supposed to be, you know? 
That story comes from Snap Judgment's own Rebecca Hertz. I'm Glenn Washington. We have more superheroes, villains, and even a god coming up on Snap Judgment from NPR. Do not miss it. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX. I'm Glenn Washington, and today we're all about superheroes. And right now we're going old school. People, they misuse the term, but here on Snap Judgment, when we say old school, we mean old school. We're going back several thousand years to Hanuman, the all-loving, fierce warrior, monkey god. He can move mountains. He can overthrow armies of demons single-handedly. And according to our next guest, he can even save a white boy's life when he's wandering about in a place he has no business. John Kane was visiting an ashram out in the country outside Vrindavan, India. And it was just getting dark right when he was about to leave. And the saint there asked me if these two young women could accompany me back to Brindavan so that they wouldn't have to walk alone in the dark. And when he said that, I was like, uh-oh. I felt the hair stand up on the back of my neck, and I was like, something's going to happen. So we're walking back, and it was so dark we could hardly even see the path in front of us. There's no lights. There was no moon. And... Uh, to get back to the village we were in, we had to cross a bridge on the river Yamuna. And when we got to the bridge, all of a sudden I felt that sense of uh, imminent danger again. And I said to the women, get behind me, get behind me right now. And as we walk onto the bridge, we hear steps running towards us. And couldn't see a thing. It was so dark, we couldn't see. All we could hear is their footsteps. And in my fear, from the depths of my being came this chant, this uh, name for Hanuman, which is his warrior name, and I yelled out, Bajrangabali Ki Jai! And as I yelled that out, all of a sudden, there was a bright green light, and I could see everything, and I could see that there were five people running towards us with clubs in their hands. And as the one came towards me, to hit me with his club, I reached up, and the next thing I knew, I had his club in my hand and started swinging the club around and yelling out, Jai Hanuman! And chasing them off the bridge. They ran so fast from me that they ran right out of their shoes. When I yelled out that, it came from somewhere in the depths of my being that I could never repeat again. I, I, could, I couldn't, if I tried my hardest, come up with that volume of sound in that voice. We continued on after I chased them off the bridge and as we were heading back to the town, hundreds of people were coming out of the town because they had heard my yell, which the town was a good half a mile from the bridge, and they had seen a giant green Hanuman standing over the bridge with his arm up with his club in his hand. The breath. 
You're listening to Snap Judgment. I'm Glenn Washington, and I need to step off stage for a moment. Get changed up in my, my super villain costume. These tights, boy, they look good. Hold on for a second now. What is this button? Ow! What the? Ah. Snap Judgment, baby. Rule number one, whatever it is you do, always look good doing it. See, now my quantum drive, the lithium core, dimension jumping rocket ship, does not just go fast. It's sharp, baby. Yes, that is a new chrome alloy, and no, it is not available in the stores. Recognize. And please understand, if they had made the big fuss about how unbreakable the new security system was, I wouldn't even bother. Check the tape. I sat there for 45 minutes, big sack full of jewels in my lap before I finally pulled the alarm my damn self. That's when the fun started. I hopped in my rocket ship and towed through the middle of downtown Metropolis, making up all kinds of commotion. Sirens, helicopters, police lights. I'm having a ball. Then here he comes, Superman. And right on cue, the ladies start screaming, Oh, Superman, 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 so brave. It is not brave to go in the burning building when you do not burn. It ain't brave to get shot when you don't feel bullets. Superman, nothing stops him. Nothing. Uh, 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 Kryptonite, please. I think he started that nonsense. I tried everything. Kryptonite rays, kryptonite missiles. Once, I had the fool locked in a kryptonite coffin. Oh, oh, it hurts. Kryptonite, kryptonite. Then he broke out and started tearing up my secret lab. It, it just never stops. Then, then, he's got the nerve to put on some glasses and suddenly he's incognito. Like I'm stupid. I even called him out at the club. What's up, Superman? How you doing, Superman? Clark, steady looking all around all corny like I must be talking to somebody else. Excuse me? Uh, what's going on here? Whatever, man. And, and no, this had nothing to do with Lois Lane. You wanna know what this is about? You wanna know what this beef is about? One thing and one thing only. Jungle fever. Superman had it bad. Call me what you want to, but Clark Kent was up in Legends Nightclub seven nights a week chasing the chocolate goodness. And I'm not hating, I understand. But one night, I'm ordering my Hennessy, turn around and there he is talking to Sheila, my Sheila. And I'm like, oh hell to the gnaw. But I'm supposed to step to the Man of Steel? And on top of everything else, Superman's got that mind control. How else Sheila gonna get up in front of everybody in the club and walk out with Clark Kent? Explain me that. She was with me. She came there with me. So, yeah, I stalked him. I followed him. I know him better than his mama and I don't know him at all. He's weird. Like he's reading the words that come out of his mouth for a while. I thought he was a robot, cause everybody breaks character sometimes, but not Superman. I trailed him with my special seeing everywhere machine. He knew I was watching the whole time and he didn't care. Why should he? Do you know what Superman does in his apartment by himself? Tell me, do you? Huh? Nothing, just sits there. Doesn't turn on the TV, doesn't eat cereal, doesn't watch porn. He does nothing but sit there and look stupid. I, I had to take him out. I tried to take him out. I, I couldn't take him out. At first, if you don't succeed, try again and again and again. And every time he's off flying me back to jail, steady making pronouncements about fighting evil. I am nobody's evil. I just don't think we should be letting aliens from outer space roll up in here with our women. That's right, I said it, our women. Now I'm evil, please. 
my name is Darnell, and what I am is a student of the game. The rules clearly state when the big dog is up in your way, accept the place, son. Or, or you go get you some more juice. I needed power, crazy power, power like the sun. I started looking, and my brand new secret laboratory turns out there are dimensions between the dimensions. And dimensions between that, the deeper you dig, the stronger the force, the stronger the power. All this technology, and in the end, I didn't just find power. I found God. And I put him in a gun. At least, I think it's God, or maybe it's the devil. It's really simple, though. At the end of the universe, the end of time, the end of everything, it is going to ask you what matters. No more waiting eon for your personal judgment day. My little shooter sent you there with a quickness. And you can't lie. You can't lie. God will have her answer. So anyway, Superman was hovering in front of my chrome grill rocket ship. I went on ahead and fired my tractor beam. Useless. Superman ripped the hatch off my ship like it was wrapping paper. I, I, you got me. Stop tearing up my ride. Your reign of terror has come to an end. The crowd cheered. Superman's gaze stayed fixed into the distance as he flew me off to prison. I even gave him a couple minutes. Hey, Clark. He didn't turn his head, didn't look at me. I was not worth the effort to him. Hey, Clark, I've got a present for you. I shot God right between his eyes. It was instantaneous. I saw Superman at the end of the universe. Then came the question. Will you give your life to save this world? Or will you live as a hero knowing the earth is doomed? Tough one, Clark. Lay down your life like a new Jesus or keep up with this fake hero act. Superman bowed his head and answered instantly, softly, hero. <laughs> ah, finally, at long last, Super Duper Man was off script. Then we were back in the sky, Superman still flying me off to jail. The air was warm, salty, delicious. I spoke in a little voice, because I know he's got that super hearing. Clark. Clark, I heard you, Clark. I heard you sell us out. Nothing, nothing, no reaction at all. Then he blinked, just a blink, and everything changed. We sped towards the ground. I didn't scream because I couldn't scream. I couldn't inhale. We landed, soft, like a swan kissing the water. He released me, his eyes shone, his mouth hung open in shock. Then Superman shrieked. The air burned. Yeah, he looked at me then. Yeah, for the first time ever, he looked at me then. I spit in his face. It ran down his cheek and his eye. He shot up into the air, speeding toward the sun. See, life hurts. We all have hard choices to make. I had my own decision in front of the light. But that, <laughs> see, that's a whole other story. Extended clip and body them all day. Roll an 
every station wreck the DJ. Roller every station wreck the DJ. If hip hop should die before I wait, I load an extended clip and body them all day. Roller every station wreck the DJ. Roller A station wreck the DJ. This is where it all began. This is where it all began. Cyborg, Android, Wisdom, Snap Judgment was produced by myself, Glenn Washington, but never alone, friends, never alone. That Uber producer, Mark Ristich, runs with the ball. Faster than a speeding bullet, the god of war and radio, one Roman Mars. Are you trapped in a ball of lead, speeding towards a black hole? You better get some Rebecca Megahertz on the line. The Snap Super Crew, DJ, DJ, DJ Ben, Smooth Grooves Picasso on the ones and twos. Rita Daniels, Sarah Jesse, Stephanie Fu, Christian Pollock, Will Urbina. Now, Snap Judgment is inspired by Youth Speaks because the next generation can speak for itself youthspeaks.org Snap Judgment is powered by those mad genius-i at Media Cannon. Check out their handiwork on our site snapjudgment.org podcasts, iPhone apps, movies all manner of nudity goodness at snapjudgment.org If you do happen to see the Corporation for Public Broadcasting go ahead tie them to some railroad tracks when the train's coming and look how fast they can escape. They like it when you do that. Many thanks to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Now, PRX is, in fact, the Public Radio Exchange, a super organization in and of themselves. They put the public back in radio. And even though this is not the news, in fact, you could fly up into the air, around the earth, faster than light itself, reversing time until arriving at the very birth of the galaxy, and you would still not be further from the news than this is. This is NPR. You are listening to Snap Judgment, and to hear more stories, visit snapjudgment.org.